Ever have a dream where something in the dream mirrored something in the real world? I can remember having a dream where I was sitting in my class in my elementary school and I heard the bells of a church that was next door ringing, only to wake up to realize that my real-life alarm clock was going off, probably longer than it should have. It's pretty common for things happening in real life to affect the things that are happening in the dream life. But usually when this happens, you realize what's going on, you give yourself a yes, bye, and move on with your life. But what if the opposite were true? What if things in the dream world affected things in the real world? Given how strange dreams sometimes are, that seems like quite a lot more terrifying. Yet, this exact thing was surprisingly common among a specific group of mostly men in the United States in the late 1970s and early 1980s. Horror King Wes Craven caught wind of this story, and the idea of a villain who hunted his victims in their sleep was formed. That's right, the 1984 classic A Nightmare on Elm Street was inspired by true events that were indeed some weird. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 9 of the Some Weird Podcast, a podcast about strange and unusual stories told by us, a sister and brother team hailing from the island of Newfoundland. I am your co-host, Chrissy. And I'm your co-host, Barry. In this episode, we are talking about our second favorite sleep demon, Freddy Krueger, and the real-life inspiration for the classic horror movie, A Nightmare on Elm Street. Of course, our first favorite sleep demon is the old hag, which certainly makes the top 10 list of Newfoundland and Labrador folklore. Getting the old hag is terrifying for a few moments. If you want to deep dive into the hag, we dedicate Season 1, Episode 3 to this. But as a recap, the old hag is commonly known as sleep paralysis. When you get the hag, you have a feeling of extreme terror and a feeling like your chest is being crushed, often by a creepy old demon woman. It is terrifying, but it's not physically threatening. And it usually only lasts a couple of minutes, and then it's done, you realize you have the hag, and then you just move on with your life. Now, the real story that inspired Wes Craven to write A Nightmare on Elm Street was about seemingly healthy people who had the old hag on steroids, and these people actually died in their sleep. Well, you say it's not physically threatening, but not being able to move your hands and feet and arms and all that, that is physically threatening to me. Like I said, it only happens for a second and and you kind of get out of it very quickly. That terrifying few seconds is physically threatening, in my opinion. Yeah, but it's not like your heart is stopping or whatever. You get a feeling that you can't move, but there's nothing physical that makes you can't move. (laughs) The bed doesn't eat and spit out all the blood. (laughs) Yes. We'll also talk a little bit about uh, Wes Craven's personal experience, how he helped create one of the most iconic characters for any genre. Freddy Krueger is definitely in the top two of characters with knives for hands. I see you, Edward Scissorhands, but you're no Freddy Krueger. Let's get it on the go. I'm a Krueger guy, not a Scissorhands guy. So I guess before we get into the real-life story about it, we'll talk a little bit about Wes Craven. He is the director who did the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and actually wrote the film as well. He is pretty much one of the greatest names in slasher horror genre, and he's actually nicknamed the Master of Horror. In addition to Nightmare movies, he also did the Scream movies, which kind of are like a semi-parody of this film genre in itself. Yes. Wes was born in a place near and dear to my heart, Cleveland, Ohio. Do you think he was a Browns fan? Oh, he had to be. How can you be born in Cleveland and not be a Browns fan? Uh, yeah, so like I said, he grew up uh, in the Midwest uh, in Cleveland in a religious house. So his parents are very strict to the point where he wasn't even allowed to watch movies as a kid. That's insane. Were we restricted from being allowed to do anything, <laughs> you know? I don't know. 
It's funny now, uh, I was talking to my mom about this episode today. You guess you were 10 years old when you first seen this? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> and my mom's first reaction was, I let her watch that when she was 10. But anyway, <laughs> different, the 80s were a different time. It was. I think at, at that point, I'd already watched The Exorcist, by the way, Mom. <laughs> so. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, that's right. So this is, not, this is a lot tamer than that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But anyway, uh, he did have very active imagination. He ended up graduating with a degree in English and psychology, and he ended up getting his master's in philosophy and writing. So a very well-educated man. He briefly worked in the academic field. His heart wasn't in this, though, and he really wanted to get into film. At one point, he purchased a 16-millimeter camera and kind of made movies. Everything has a camera now, and it's pretty easy to make movies, but back then it wasn't. You had to buy a special camera. But he eventually did get a job in the film industry. But it wasn't until his 30s that he actually started in the film. And you know what industry he started? Like what genre? Yeah, what genre of film he started in? Horror movies? No, he started in the porn industry. Oh. <laughs> bow, bow, bow. It was actually the high-class porn industry. I'm not really sure what the difference was. Uh, he wrote many of these films, uh, many porn films in his day, which I can't imagine it's very difficult to write a porn film. You don't need an English degree for that. No, you show up at the door, the, something's broken the house, you go in to fix it, and <laughs> the rest of it writes itself. There you go. Yeah, but he did many of them under pseudonyms. He didn't use his actual name. Eventually, he did move on from porn, and he made some semi-popular films. Uh, one was called The House on the Left. This was a very disturbing movie about torture and rape. Oh. Yeah. So he did have a bit of a twisted uh, mind. A couple of films he did that were pretty popular were The Hills Have Eyes and Swamp Thing. Again, he had some pretty moderate success before Nightmare on Elm Street, which was certainly what he's most known for, I would think. Yeah, I would say so. Mm-hmm. One day he was reading an article in the LA Times. And it was about Cambodian refugees, and these people actually foresaw their deaths in dreams. People would have nightmares, and apparently in the Cambodian culture, when you had nightmares, you actually write it down or you'd actually paint it, which is pretty interesting. I don't think I'd be able to wake up and start painting. <laughs> Do they have a whole palette, like a big easel next to their bed? or? <laughs> yeah, the smock and everything ready to go. A beret. Yeah, exactly. But... Um, Again, there's one specific story about the refugee who was afraid to go to sleep because if you fall asleep, that this nightmare man would kill him. And eventually, when he did fall asleep a couple of days later, when he finally did, because, you know, I don't know how long you've ever tried to stay awake for, but you can't do it for very long. Shit gets real when you're up for over 18, 19 hours. I mean, stuff starts not making sense, and you can't think straight, and you start hallucinating. It's, it's a real fucked up thing. It's the worst. So um, however long the person stayed up, he finally fell asleep, and he actually ended up dying. So uh, this story... Intrigued to Wes Craven and gave him an idea for uh, a movie. Based on this, he began working on a script for a slasher film about someone killing you in your sleep. For fleshing out the character, which we now know as Freddy Krueger, and him and Jason are the two most iconic characters in the horror genre, I would have to bet. If you're going to put like a trifecta up there, I would say Pennywise as well. I would have said Michael Myers, but... Uh... Yeah, if you're going for like slasher, yeah, that's true. You know what? They're all having a party together. I'm not discriminating. That's right. But uh, yeah, in terms of pop culture, everybody knows who Freddy Krueger is. Yes. When he uh, came up with this idea and he wanted to flesh out this character of Freddy, he used several real-life references. So the first one to think about Freddy is his face, and it's all burnt. But he got that idea from when he was a child, he saw a man with a burnt face, and the image terrified him. So he said, okay, and when he came to making a very terrifying character, the first thing he thought of was this. So the next part of the Freddy Krueger thing was the hat. Uh, the hat was in the same style wore by a drunk who had it while he was walking down the road to the street one day. So he, he saw this drunk walking down the road in Cleveland, Ohio, probably after Browns lost the game. The guy drunk scared him, so and when it came to creating a, an evil slasher character, he used that hat. 
So the third thing that's very iconic with Freddy Krueger is the razor blade glove. In what circumstance is that ever practical aside from you wanting to be a killer though, right? So where did that come from? Well, the inspiration for it came from watching his cat claw's couch. Oh, really? Another interesting inspiration for the Freddy Krueger character is the song Dreamweaver, the 70s pop hit by Gary Wright. So it's not a scary song or anything like that, but the thought of a mind weaving dreams into a mystical force, he kind of helped cement the idea of Freddy in his head, how the dreams can manifest into the real world. I don't know if Gary Wright got any money out of it, but... Uh, Maybe he will after hearing this, because I think he's a fan. I'm sure he is, yeah. And the name Freddy Krueger, he was bullied as a child by a kid named Freddy Krueger. Oh, well, that's just blatant. Yeah, so he said, I'm going to get you back by making you uh, an iconic slasher. But yeah, that's basically how he fleshed out the character of Freddy Krueger. What kind of a fucking asshole was that childhood bully? Uh, he must have been pretty bad. Do you think he got any money out of it? I'd say not. What's weird about that, though, is a lot of times in movies you see this disclaimer that says any resemblance to real life stuff is purely coincidental. Yeah, that's right, yeah. But it sounds like Wes Craven is like, no, this was definitely totally based on this jerk face. Yeah, well, I think the name was, not the actual character. Yeah, think. but he didn't just pick the name out of the phone book. He picked the bully. And his name was Fred Kroger. It wasn't like Jimmy Kroger or anything like that. He went right with it. Yeah. He's like, what's your middle name? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so bully, a cat, a song, a drunk, a burnt up face. Wow. That's Freddy Kroger. Okay. So he used all these inspirations and he came up with a backstory. He was an insane child murderer that was released from custody due to a technicality. The person murdered kids using a glove that had razor blades for fingernails because he had a boiler room. And he said, I, I, can make a, I can make a razor blade glove with this. <laughs> Don't pick your nose. <laughs> so the parents on Elm Street uh, learned that this man was on the street and decided to hunt him down. They found him. They had Freddy burned alive in a boiler room as sort of vigilante justice. As bad as this guy is, you can't do that. But anyway. And Freddy promised to get back at the families by hunting and killing the parents' children where they couldn't protect them in their dreams. It's a really good idea, actually. It's a great idea. It's kind of campy, but I rewatched part one, two, and three before doing this episode. Oh, okay. The original Nightmare on Elm Street was freaking amazing. It's a great idea. It's got some shitty acting in it, except for uh, Robert Englund, who plays Freddy Krueger. I mean, the special effects, they're mental, but the story is so good. It was very low budget. I mean, they had a budget of a million dollars. All the special effects combined was $57,000. 50000 of that was spent on fake blood, probably. Probably, yeah. So, I mean, I think they did pretty good with what they had. Yeah. What was weird, though, in the very first one where Nancy's mother says, oh, yeah, we killed that guy. We got together and we burnt him up. And she takes her down the basement. She opens up her furnace and says, here's his glove. Like, she's got it <laughs> saved in the furnace or whatever. In the timeline of that movie, that only happened a few years earlier. So yeah. how, if something that big happened in your little Elm Street town, wouldn't you all know about it? <laughs> yeah, I'd know about it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't know every secret that our parents had, but I think if they murdered somebody, I might know. <laughs> they burned it and they left a kind of trophy of it and showed you. I think you know that. <laughs> He's gone. I killed him. Here's his razor glove. But anyway, um, so that part didn't really stand up. I still loved the movies. Another thing, too, that flushes out part of uh, Freddy's backstories in the third one, I believe. Turns out there was a nun that was in an insane asylum and it was she was raped like a hundred times and they don't know which of the hundred people that raped her was actually Freddy's father. Yeah, I think the line was something like, Freddy Krueger was the bastard son of a hundred maniacs. So Wes Craven came up with this character, Freddy Krueger, so he wrote the movie. 
at the time, no one was willing to buy it or release it for theatrically. So he shopped this around for years. He had it in the binder for a long time. But he finally found someone at this new company called New Line Cinemas. They agreed to do this movie. The budget was a million dollars. Wes Craven, like I said before, one of the movies he did in 1982 was a movie called Swamp Thing. So his daughter watched this movie. And she asked why the women in these films are always stupid, falling down and getting killed. You know, they're always rotting away and they trip over the tree branch. And next thing you know, they get their head cut off. So in this movie, the women are the ones that are the strong ones, right? Like Nancy's the main mm-hmm. one that fights the character and all that. So, you know, at that time, it was kind of very revolutionary, right? That's true. With this movie, basically the entire company was put on the line. Mm-hmm. So they got uh, Robert England to play Freddy. You know where he got to start? I think it was on that V miniseries, right? Yes, it was. Yeah, there's a, there's a show that's near and dear to my heart. I remember that in the 80s. I don't remember a whole lot about it. I remember they had green skin under regular skin, and one of them ate a rat, which is a very famous scene. So if Nightmare on Elm Street came out in 1984 and V was before 1984, you literally would have been five or six years old. Yeah, I definitely should have been watching his mom. (laughs) But uh, anyway. (laughs) Let's see how much guilt we could put on our poor mom. Yeah. So a few other things about this movie. Um, The special effects budget, I think we already mentioned this, was $57,000. And there is a couple scenes that it kind of shows, like especially the ending scene, which we'll get to in a little bit. (laughs) Yes. It was so bad that even 10-year-old me said, that's really fake looking. That was, what, seven? First out of this movie, I was like, that looks really, really bad. Even the special effects guy said that was really, really bad. But and the guy who scored the movie wasn't originally paid. Uh, they had someone in the movie team go pay the music guy. On his way there, he got into an automobile accident and was worried about getting sued, so he took off, money and all. <laughs> okay. But anyway, they said, you know, once we make some money in the film, we'll pay him. But he was fine with that, and I guess he ended up getting paid, obviously, because the movie did well. Quickly, a little quick synopsis of the movie. I'm not going to go into great detail here. But in the movie, there's a group of teenagers. They face off against Freddy. One of the teens has a dream where she's being terrorized in a boiler room by a man with a razor glove. And when she awakens, her shirt is torn. That was slashed in her dream. So next day, there's a group of four friends, and they're kind of talking about their dreams that they had. And it turns out they're all dreaming about the same guy. So another night, they're over to a friend, Tino. She has a dream about the man again, only this time she actually gets killed in her dream. Is that the one where she's spinning around, getting dragged around the room and everything? Yeah, she kind of like is up on the ceiling and she's going around the walls and, and she's getting all scratched up and her boyfriend is watching it all happen. And he's going, Tina! Yeah. Tina! <laughs> That's all he's doing. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, the the boyfriend ends up getting arrested for the murder and it turns out that Nancy, who's the main character, her father is a police officer who does the arresting. So eventually all the other members get killed. Uh, one gets eaten by her bed and throws up blood. Yeah, that was Johnny Depp's character. That was Johnny Depp. It was so 80s. He is laying in the bed with his cropped football jersey, and he's sitting there with these giant-ass headphones that kind of look like the headphones I'm wearing right now, and this big tube TV on his bed, and he's got his stereo, which is like a giant dad-esque type of stereo next to him. Oh, the paws off. Exactly. Like, if it was filmed today, he'd have his phone, right? But all that shit got sucked down into the bed. And for anybody who doesn't know, Paws Off, back when I was a, a young boy, our father was really into music, and he had this huge stereo, and I wasn't allowed to touch it. So he used to call it, that's the Paws Off, meaning my fingers weren't allowed to touch it. I didn't know it was called a stereo, because I was only a kid. I was like three years old or whatever it was. <laughs> I was just watching V, <laughs> try to listen to some music to calm yourself down. Yeah, and that's Daddy's Paws Off. But anyway. Um, <laughs> so over the course of the movie, Nancy has several run-ins with Freddy in her dreams, and during one, she ends up taking his hat out of the dream world into the real world. 
So based on this, she hatches a plan to try and grab Freddy out of her dream. She does so. She catches him on fire in her basement and supposedly kills him, kind of burns him in the furnace that he was burnt in, I guess, three years ago, according to the story. <laughs> right. Yeah. People have really short memories in the Elm Street world. So Freddy's thought to be dead a few times, but he keeps coming back. And in the climactic scene at the end, Nancy realizes that Freddy feeds off the fear of his victims. So she just kind of stops being afraid and he kind of evaporates. So there was nine in these films. And one they ended up going with was basically the next morning, Nancy's there and she's in the world. It's like a morning and it's like kind of white and stuff like that. Uh, her friends are alive in this world again. So she gets in the car with her boyfriend. The car kind of locks himself in and drives off on its own. Her mother's there in the front step and she's staring at these kids and, and they're skipping. While she's there in the front door, the front door has like this little two-foot window in the front of it. So Freddy's hand smashes the window, grabs it, and hauls her to the window. <laughs> and it's a very, obviously a dummy, and it's like so stiff, and it looks so bad. And then and, those little girls, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, the little girls are doing skipping, and they're doing, the, which is, you know, one of the most famous things in the f- film as well is, is the rhyme, right? And that's, that's some creepy shit. Yeah, it is creepy. I guess Wes Craven wrote that little rhyme too, which is actually quite brilliant because all of those nursery rhymes are all based on the plague and like yeah. some youngster getting murdered and like all of those things are based on creepy as fuck shit. And that song goes out through the movie. Like when she's in the bathtub, I think she's singing that if I'm not mistaken. And through the whole series, I'm assuming, right? Yes, it's very creepy and it does its job. Yeah, like I said, this movie is a culture phenomenon. I do recall seeing it. I don't know how old I was. I don't think I saw it in 84, but I certainly seen it, you know, when I was 9 or 10. Never sleep again. I think I probably suggested that you watch it. That sounds about right. <laughs> I don't remember if you were scared of it or not. The one thing I do remember that stood out to me most was the scene at the end, and I thought it was hilarious. Even at 7 or whatever it was, so I was like, <laughs> it doesn't look real. Even the special effects guy said it looked like shit, but anyway, some studio exec loved it, and that's why they ended up using it. Eh, well, I mean, whatever. Leave the ending alone, and uh, the rest of it is pretty cool, especially that nursery rhyme. Yeah, for sure. All right, so that's the basic premise of the movie, A Nightmare on Elm Street, and some of Wes Craven's really bizarre influences, especially for the character itself. Uh, I want to get a little bit more into the background for that story that Wes Craven read in the newspaper about uh, this poor person who actually died in their sleep. This movie is definitely not based on a true story, but so many inspirations were actual events. I think you said it in the Exorcist episode where it's uh, inspired by true events, we'll say. All right, so let's talk about Cambodia, shall we? Sure. Cambodia is a country in Southeast Asia, and it borders Thailand, Laos, and Vietnam. Like almost everywhere on Earth, it became part of some European nation's empire at one point. In this case, it was France. And then it gained its independence in 1953. 20th century history is, as young and or cool people say, my jam. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Cambodia's post-colonialism era. Okay. During the Vietnam War, it was officially neutral, even though it's right on the border. But it still got dragged into that whole hot mess because the buys from North Vietnam, a.k.a. the commies, um, they started going through Cambodia like certain neighbors would walk through your wild side instead of walking around <laughs> the loop of the mash. They said, yeah. hey, we're just right there, so we'll just make a path right on through. 
Same thing happened in Cambodia with the North Vietnamese. Same principle. So anyway, the Americans, in their attempt to crush the North forces, the communist forces in Vietnam, started bombing the bits of Cambodia that were being used as a pathway for that war effort. As a result of this, nobody was having a good time in 1960s and 70s Cambodia. Least of all was a psychopath called Pol Pot. In 1975, Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge overthrew the government who had just come to power in 1970. So five years later, (laughs) they overthrew that government that overthrew the government before it um, in a coup d'etat. And they installed themselves as the HBIC. Uh, That stands for Head Bitches in Charge. So this crowd was in power until 1979. And then they got the boot during the Cambodian-Vietnam War. They were only in power for four years. You might be asking yourself, four years, Pol Pot, Khmer Rouge, turmoil in Cambodia, and the price of tea in China, what does all of this have to do with a nightmare on Elm Street? The answer to that is lots. Pol Pot was a man who had a vision, and that vision was insane. He was sick and tired of all the bullshit going on with the Cold War and its effects on his country, and he thought, the hell with all this noise, my homeland should be entirely self-sufficient and return to living off the land. Okay. Nice idea, right? Seems like a good idea. But as they say, communism is a good idea in theory. So he's like, mind your business, stay out of all these constant wars. And while we're at it, fuck you two colonial people. Like Everyone (laughs) fuck off and leave us alone. We're going to be a bunch of farmers. But there's a huge difference between the theory of this communist utopia and the attempt to create it. The first thing you need to do if you want a country of farmers is get everyone out of the cities. So that's what the Khmer Rouge did. They actually went in to all the cities, took everybody out, and they put them all in these forced labor camps all throughout the countryside. It didn't matter what skill you had or what occupation you had or anything like that. It was just like, you're a dentist in Phnom Penh. Uh, Nope, today you're a rice farmer. That's your new job. And people just had to do it. So what happened when you didn't agree with this agrarian socialism? That made you be declared an enemy of the state and you needed to be dealt with. And they dealt with these people harshly. Killed them? Yes. These were their main enemies of the state. Intellectuals, students, doctors, lawyers, Buddhists. Today, Buddhism is the official religion of Cambodia. But Buddhists and minority groups such as Thai, Chinese, Vietnamese, Muslim, and Christian. So that's a lot of people. Yeah. I can understand the theory of, you know, living off the land and, and you need to, you know, provide food for the people and all that kind of stuff. But you do need, like doctors is one specifically, you, you need physicians for a society to function. It's like a cult leader. They say they have this really good idea, but they're really looking for the power. I don't think they have the good of people in mind. So their targets were everybody who wasn't them. And mm-hmm. all those people were imprisoned, tortured, and murdered. By the end of it, somewhere between 1.5 and 2 million people which is about 20% of the total population, were murdered in the Cambodian genocide. Wow. Yeah. These victims were unceremoniously buried in over 20,000 mass graves throughout the whole country, and those mass graves were dubbed the killing fields. All right. So all that happened in Cambodia, but it wasn't just Cambodia. It was also Laos. So Laos gets dragged into this whole Vietnam War mess as well, and eventually Laos, like Vietnam, does become a communist country. Within Laos, during the Vietnam War, the Americans recruited what they called a secret army. And that secret army mostly consisted of a indigenous group of people throughout that region called the Hmong people. 
And though the killing fields is mostly associated with Pol Pot and Cambodia, it's also worth noting that after the communist victory in Laos, many of the enemies of that state were also murdered, and they estimate about 300,000 people, most of them Hmong people, were murdered in the killing fields of Laos. After that government took over, the U.S. did support resettlement of about 130,000 Hmong people to the U.S., and they were uprooted from their families, from their homelands, from everything that they knew, and they were kind of dumped in various places throughout the United States as refugees. It was a U.S.-sponsored thing. The American government were taking these many people, but amongst them the Hmong people, who were their supporters during the war so that they could bring them to the United States so they don't have to live under the communist regime, blah, 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 blah. Yep. Next, Wes Craven reads a newspaper. <laughs> okay. I, br- I touched on it briefly. You touched on this briefly. So the bad guy in, in A Nightmare on Elm Street, the son of 100 maniacs and a Catholic nun, hunts people in their dreams. As you mentioned, Wes Craven got the idea partly after he read an article in the LA Times about a family of refugees who escaped from the killing fields of Cambodia to make a new life in America. They were part of that refugee program. I actually read the article myself. Okay. So here's the gist of it. It seems like a major geographical upgrade to go from probably you're going to be murdered to America. (laughs) It wasn't the case for at least one son of one of these families. At first, everything was pretty good. But soon after arriving, the son started to have these really intense nightmares where he thought that somebody or someone or something was chasing him in his sleep. It's kind of understandable because they were literally running, you know, in real life. So you could see how that made its way into his dreams. But whenever he would have this recurring nightmare, he would wake up covered in sweat and his heart would be pounding and he was absolutely terrified. Soon enough, he's actually afraid to go to sleep. And he's convinced that if he does, this thing in his dreams is going to catch him. And if it did, he was going to die in his sleep, which would make him die in real life. He tried to keep himself awake by taking caffeine pills, just like they do in the movie. Yep. I also read that he had hidden a coffee pot in his closet. (laughs) I don't know if that's true or not, because coffee is a very distinct smell, and I can imagine his parents didn't smell. There's no hiding that, no. Yeah, but anyway, the point is, I guess he tried to do whatever he could to stay awake. His parents were worried, but there's not really a lot you could do except for say, it's just a dream. Yeah, don't ask me. But no matter what they tried to do, they tried to calming him, tell him he's safe and it's just a dream. They even tried to give him sleeping pills, but he was convinced that he was going to die if he went to sleep. Unfortunately for the kid, though, eventually your body will shut down. It will go to sleep whether you want to or not. So he finally goes to sleep. His parents are super happy. Like, thank God, finally, this kid is asleep. We can go to bed. But that very night, the parents are awakened by this blood curdling scream coming from their son's room. They rush to his room check out what's going on, try to calm him down. But by the time they got there, the screaming had stopped. So they kind of cautiously go over to him. They find he's not breathing and he has no pulse. He wasn't asleep anymore. He actually did die when he went to sleep. Wow. That's the story that Wes Craven saw. Last episode, the story I told was about this Olivia Mabel person. And it kind of turned out that it was a made up story made to look real. It was for a movie for a movie, right? Kind of like this. Well, that's what I thought. Was this story of Wes Craven reading this article also made up? You know, is this part of the lore of the story? But I don't think so, because this anecdote of this son who died is not the only case. In the medical journals, you can learn about what was going on. So they actually have like a uh, medical term for this? 
They do. There was a lot of cases of mostly men. There was one woman who were seemingly healthy, and they arrived as refugees from places in Southeast Asia, like Cambodia and Laos, and they seemed to mysteriously die in their sleep. It looked like they actually died of fright from some dream that they were having. Uh, the medical community called this condition Sudden Unexplained Nocturnal Death Syndrome, or SUNS. By 1981, SUNS was the cause of death for 19 among men and one woman. The symptoms were they were afraid to go to sleep, they do fall asleep, they end up breathing heavily, thrashing about, screaming, and dying. 19 doesn't seem like a giant amount of people, but in that time frame that this study is done, there was only 33 total deaths recorded among the Hmong refugees. So 20 of them were sons, and 13 were every other kind of death. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, it's way more than half. By the time Nightmare on Elm Street was released in 1984, sons had killed 72 refugees from Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam. An anthropologist from the University of California at San Francisco named Dr. Shelley Adler took an interest in this as well. It wasn't just Wes Craven. She decided that she was going to investigate this weird phenomenon that seemed to be affecting this very particular group of people. So she spoke to a whole bunch of refugees about the phenomenon, and they said that they didn't really have any recollection of this being common back in Asia. But they did have some kind of an explanation for why it was happening here in America. They actually said that they felt evil spirits were attacking them in their sleep with the purpose of collecting their souls, either because they left their homelands or because they weren't fulfilling some kind of religious obligations. It's very bizarre. Well, the, the other side of it was it was happening. There's no denying it was happening. So that's as good as explanations ending versus sudden death syndrome, whatever it was called. Sons. Yeah, I mean, they just put a name on it. People suddenly die. We'll call it sudden death syndrome. But what about the religious slackers that were back in Southeast Asia? Like, I'm sure not everyone over there was super pious and everything else. They said that when they're back in Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam, they're actually protected by their ancestors, even in their dreams. So when they left and they were all dispersed throughout the United States, they were no longer in that ancestral place. And then somehow that connection between their ancestors protecting them in their dream was broken. Okay. Another explanation they have is, and this one you'll probably enjoy, they have something in their culture called a dacho, which is an evil pressing spirit. Oh. This frigger comes to you at night and he, she, it, whatever, presses down on your chest, making it very hard for you to breathe. Sounds familiar. Does sound kind of familiar. Season one, episode three. <laughs> so the medical professionals, they thought that sons was being caused by this tremendous stress of first surviving the killing fields, uh, being refugees, and culture shock of moving to America. Others thought it was extreme sleep paralysis. They never wake up out of it. Yeah. But whatever the cause was, there seemed to be fewer and fewer cases of sons as we move into the 80s and 90s. Here's my uneducated guess for why this happened. So... As the refugees become more and more assimilated into the great melting pot of the United States, the cultural constructs and the belief systems are not as strong as they were at the beginning or as they were when they were in their original homelands. Add to that, if a lot of those refugees were younger children when they came to the United States, or if they were children that were actually born you know, to refugee parents, they would be more inclined to identify themselves as American and they wouldn't put as much stock into those belief systems. The old country, yeah. Right. So they probably still have these nightmares, but they're not 
killing them in their sleep because they don't have the belief that they're going to die in their sleep. Yeah. They become the dream warriors. They do become the dream warriors. So that's the history lesson of Cambodia, Vietnam, the war, (laughs) the pressing spirit, (laughs) and uh, what was going on to lead to that article that Wes Craven read to create Nightmare on Elm Street. Pretty interesting how such a historical event created such a iconic movie that has nothing to do with the historical event. But if the Vietnam War didn't happen and the killing fields didn't happen and the communists didn't take over Laos and Vietnam and there was no refugees, then there would be no article for Wes Craven to read. Yeah, that's right. And maybe we still would have had Freddy Krueger, but he wouldn't have been a dream killer. He would have been just an asshole. Or maybe it would have turned into a porn movie. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) That glove would be done for a lot of different things. It wouldn't be knives on the gloves. No, that's right. That's it. Every town has an Elm Street and everyone has nightmares. Where's the Elm Street of Bear Roberts? Water Street. Water Street? Okay, yeah. Because it has a haunted house that mm-hmm. you said was abandoned and it had a light on in the window. And when you brought your yeah. wife there to look at the haunted house, the light wasn't on. <laughs> it was gone. That's right, yeah. But you know, I thought it was a really cool story. And I really liked how an event on the other side of the world created one of the most iconic horror characters of all time. If you were to create a horror character yourself based on your personal influences, what elements would it have? You have the meep. <laughs> um, do you remember that time uh, we used to do this game where I'd sit on your feet and you'd like launch me? And one time I landed right on my tailbone and my tailbone hurt for like a year afterwards. <laughs> I caused you a lot of injury. That I remember when you fell off the bed and scarred your eyebrow. I remember getting so mad at you one time that I hit you with like a belt or something and it made your back all welted up. Mom got super mad at me. But yeah, but going back to what my horror character looked like, I guess maybe you by the sounds of this. <laughs> It'd be an evil older sister forcing you to learn about Cambodia. Yeah, one of the things that stands out to me the most in my childhood that I was scared of was the meeps, so, which we've discussed before. It was dad snoring. <laughs> did the story freak you listeners out let us know by our email somewhereadpodcast at gmail.com or on the twitter at somewhereadpod or our website somewhereadpodcast.com if you like the show please share it however you see fit so our next episode is going to be actually our final episode of season three i can't believe we already did it it just seems like we just started it but here we are at the end be sure to join us for our next one but until then there's only one more thing to do True stories that inspired Nightmare on Elm Street. Some weird boy. Some weird. He wanted the glove to look like something that a boiler maker could make. A boiler maker could make? What does that mean? Like a guy who works in boilers in a boiler room. <laughs> okay, he already knew Freddy's occupation before he knew the glove. Exactly, yeah, exactly. All right. One, two, Freddy's coming for you. Three, four, better lock your door. Five, six, grab a crucifix. Seven, eight, better stay up late. Nine, ten, never sleep again. <laughs>